0: Welcome to the NOVA Podcast. Welcome back to the NOVA Podcast. My name is Jeff Counts and I'm your host on this episode four of the pre-concert lecture series this season. Whether you're at home, a few days before the event, or in the car on the way to the theater, we thank you for being with us today. This concert that we'll be talking about today is Songs of Play. I'm not going to go all graduation speech on you, but I do want to define that word a little bit and talk about how it's used in this context. When we talk about play, we talk about an activity that is done for enjoyment over practical concerns. It's also the word we use to describe a staged drama it's also the word we use to describe the operation of a musical instrument you play the violin you play the clarinet i'm recalling a piece written by american composer andrew norman entitled play i think he took this concept about as far as you possibly can at least in a musical setting Play is a massive orchestral work, full of colors, full of vibrant, very challenging sounds. And the, the setup is that the percussionists in the orchestra realize that they have power over the rest of their colleagues. And I'll quote Andrew here. They have the power to turn other players on and off, to make them play forwards or backwards, louder or softer, faster or slower, to trade them out one for another, or to make them rewind and retry ideas again and again until they are gotten Right. The ideas he's exploring are the physicality of joy of instrumental playing, as well as the many potential meanings of coordinated human activity, how the display of massed human synchronicity can represent both the communal best and sometimes the coercive worst of our race. This concert, we're talking about that communal best. And I think the best word, the best way to use the word play for the purposes of this conversation would be playful. So songs of play or songs of playfulness, if you will. Let's start with Prokofiev. Russian composer Sergei Prokofiev left Russia after the two revolutions of 1917. This was the way the war ended for his nation. He fled first to America, where he didn't really ever feel comfortable. He was successful there, at least at the beginning. He was greeted as a traveling rock star pianist and immediately played wonderful sold-out recitals and Did have support in cities like Chicago and New York, but he wasn't able to find the kind of lasting, dependable uh, work that he needed to support himself and uh, his new family. He met his future wife while he was in America as well. He eventually went to Germany and ended up in Paris, like so many artists of his day. But during the American sojourn, he took a trip to Paris first and met there with Diaghilev and Kusevitsky, two people I call in my program notes kingmakers because the number of composers whose lives they significantly enhanced and uh, impacted is a long list and could be an entire podcast in and of itself. And not surprisingly, because of his interaction with those people, Diaghilev being the ballet impresario of the Ballet Russe, a lot of the music of that time for Prokofiev is stage music ballets and operas like fiery angel and the prodigal son once he settled in paris full-time in 1923 he found it to be an incredibly progressive place and this from a person who in russia was considered very progressive there were things happening there that he hadn't even thought of yet as a composer and he was a little bit hurt by the criticisms of his first violin concerto as being too melodic too traditional a little too conservative so He attempted to take on some of the avant-garde sensibilities he was hearing around him, particularly with a commission he was composing for Kruzevitsky. It was his second symphony. He was attempting to adopt a much more aggressively modern language in that piece, and during that time, to help pay the bills, he took on another commission, and I'll read what he wrote about that. I accepted a commission to compose a ballet for a roving dance troupe which wished to present a program of several short pieces accompanied by five instruments. I proposed a quintet consisting of oboe, clarinet, violin, viola, and double bass. The simple plot was based on circus life, and it was entitled Trapeze. Trapeze the ballet didn't survive very long. It was a little bit difficult for the dancers, so it got shelved fairly quickly after the premiere performances, and because of that short life, There was a long period of time where not much was known about the work, its gestation, its commissioner, but some recent scholarship has turned up quite a bit of information about it. They found some letters and diaries, and they now know a lot more than they once did. And the commissioner was this man, Boris Romanov, who had been introduced previously in pre-revolutionary times to Prokofiev by Diaghilev. And he's remembered as a ultra-modernist, a very striking character dancer. He choreographed and danced a number of one act small scale ballets and he had a reputation as a caricaturist and as a satirical even blasphemous artists the best thing that's come out of this original material talks about the ballet itself as seen by one reviewer and prokofiev later turned this music into a quintet he was very smart in his original dealings with romanov to make sure that he had the rights to concertize this music one year after its premiere as a ballet maybe he knew that that was going to be its life But the music was described in the following way, which I find fascinating, and I think gives us a wonderful pretext for listening to this strange little quintet of mixed winds and strings. I quote, The dancing was completely overshadowed by the intensity of the colors and the luxurious drapery. It was perceived as funny, fantastical, clown-like, confirming the decision Romanov had made earlier to emphasize the grotesque. Thankfully, this reviewer named some of the characters, quote, The tightrope walker floats. The wild beast tamer blazes up wildly. The sailor is clumsy and yet very agile. The king of the air is supple. The clowns are grotesque and vivacious. The scenery gives you the impression that you are sitting in front of an expressionist picture. We move next to a new work by American composer Stephanie Ann Boyd. She refers to herself as an American melodist, and in her bio, She counts women's memoirs and the natural world as principal influences on her work. She's also somebody who speaks very frankly about the business of being a professional musician. She has given a talk at a couple universities that's entitled Two Steps Out the Door, A Tough Love, Get Over Yourself Guide to Engineering a Career Right Out of Music School. I don't know about you, but I would love to hear that talk. I wasn't able to find it online, but I'm thinking about asking her if it's been recorded Her music, though, has been described as having an attractive lyricism, a wide-ranging and imaginative style, and being arrestingly poetic. She's a project person, too. She likes to get involved in big-picture events, including the 50-State Sonata Project, where a violin piece of hers was played in virtually every state in the Union, and then a World Sonata Project, where violinists from all over commissioned to work. This piece, Pearl, for violin and piano, is one of those, written in 2022, for the world sonata project i'll read from her program notes about the work i quote pearl takes its impetus from the violin itself the shape of the violin can be seen in the curves of the melodic lines in the first phrase of the score and the materials of the violin its resonating body of wood and the mother of pearl inlay found in many violins have constituted much of the inspiration for the piece unquote I have to tell you that the first part of the score, as she states, very much does look like a violin on its side. You don't have to be fluent in music reading to see that shape played out in front of you visually. It's a very, very cool effect. This work is based on three movements. The first movement, Fantasia Ultraviolet, has to do with, I quote again, Freshwater Pearls and Mother of Pearl and how they light up in stunning ways under UV light. Boyd has sought to write a musical portrait that gives the musicians and audience the sumptuous grand drama that the violin and piano create so beautifully together. The second movement translates to light of waters and begins with what Boyd calls a mermaid interlude in the piano, taking our musical story down into watery depths. She continues, It's a quiet elegy to the places those mother-of-pearl inlays begin their life long before they become part of our violins. Here the piano and violin create an eerie, mesmerizing space. While writing this, she was thinking of the refracted light that floats down from the water's surface. I'm sure, as you can tell, there's a real theme of light and color throughout this work. And the third movement, Dance Iridescence, takes this concept even further and brings in the other important element of the violin from that original set of inspirations, the wood that makes up its body. Here again from Boyd's Notes. The title, Dance Iridescence, takes its name again from the magical colors and light that appear in the many layers of the material that make up pearls. This movement is a quick-moving, riotous, yet tender perpetual motion that makes use of some of the violin's most resonant notes and harmonics while perhaps speaking a bit about the forests whose trees experienced their own long lives before being felled and whittled down into the resonant bodies we now know as violins. Let's move next to Counterplay by Luke Don. Luke Don is a Utah-based composer. He is part of the University of Utah Music Composition and Theory faculty. He's also a Bach chorale scholar. This is a little-known fact about Luke. He has a website that is called bach-chorales.com, where all 400-plus works in this category for Bach are cataloged and separated. You can search them by tune. You can search them by text. You can search them by their BWV number. It's an incredible resource. I went and looked at it myself while I was researching this podcast, and I got lost in it for at least an hour. It's an incredible resource for people interested in Bach. He's also published a book edition of The Corrals. It's called The Dawn Edition, and I hate to say it's currently sold out, but I do invite you to go check that website out. Luke and I were in touch about this work, Counterplay, that was written for Utah Symphony principal trombone, Mark Davidson, and pianist colleague, Victor Valkov. And let me read to you a little bit of what he wrote to me. From the outset of this project, Luke told me, I wanted to write a work that capitalized on the versatility of the trombone. That is to write a work that certainly utilizes the trombone's remarkable power, but a work that also showcases its beautiful lyrical tone. The more bombastic side of the instrument can be heard in the march-like theme that opens the work, and is heard several times throughout, as well as in the loud final section. But the lighter intersections feature more lyrical melodies that allow the trombonist to sing through their instrument. For my part, I love the duality that Luke is exploring here, because if you've listened to a lot of orchestral music, you know that the trombone has a very specific set of jobs to do in that setting. But also, if you've listened to orchestras and heard bolero, you know that this instrument has a flexibility and a color palette that almost seems limitless. And I love that he's exploring both here. Back to his note to me, though. I'm quoting again. The title Counterplay carries an obvious allusion to the word counterpoint. The two instruments are in constant dialogue throughout the piece, mimicking each other's gestures and offering interjections and counterstatement. Even the march is rendered in a kind of misaligned manner, creating a kind of contrapuntal echo effect. And now we come back to the theme of the concert. Luke says, I also liked having the word play in the title, as the march theme and prominent short descending glissando figure both take on a kind of playful character. His last comment to me was that, finally and tangentially, counterplay is a common word and concept in the game of chess, a game for which Victor, the pianist, and I share a great love. Well, if you know me you know that i couldn't let that last little tidbit lie i had to do a little research i'm not an avid chess player but i wanted to see what this concept of counterplay met to that very specific group of people a couple definitions i found online counterplay is when your opponent clearly has a goal and a plan to accomplish it but you have ways to throw moves in that intercept his plan directly or indirectly and cause him to have to respond to your counterplay another definition it's a threat or offensive position in chess intended to counter an opponent's advantage in another part of the board i think that's a very interesting way to view the interplay between the trombone and the piano in this piece they are trying to one-up each other they are trying to block each other's moves a little bit in the end though it's that playful character that wins our last song of play is the clarinet quintet of samuel coleridge taylor Colbert's Taylor was born in 1875 to an English mother and a father from Sierra Leone. Any Googling you do about this very important figure will turn up a comment made about him by the members of the New York Philharmonic, who found his conducting to be quite wonderful and claimed him the Black Mahler or the African Mahler, depending on whose account you're reading. I have to be honest and say that that kind of compliment seems very antique to me, It doesn't hold up very well, and I find the colonial specificity of it unnecessary and distancing, but thankfully there's a lot more about this incredible artist to talk about. He was named for the poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge by his mother. You might know him from the rhyme of the ancient mariner. He was prodigiously talented. He went to the Royal College of Music at 15. He ended up being incredibly prolific as a composer. And he was influenced throughout his composing life by Dvorak, Tchaikovsky, Grieg, and was also an ardent devotee of Black American folk music. He was a pioneer in the incorporation of that tradition into classical art music. The piece that made him famous, the piece that put him on the map, was the Song of Hiawatha, based on yet another long-form poet, Longfellow in this case. And it's interesting that one of his heroes, Dvorak, used it too as an influence for the second movement of his New World Symphony. As he got older, Samuel Coleridge-Taylor was involved in lots of very interesting pre-civil rights work. He was part of the Pan-African Conference in London in 1900, and one quote about that event and how important it was, was that it was one of the starting points for the Afrocentrism that constituted an important strand of the American civil rights movement 60 years later. Samuel Coleridge-Taylor was part of all of that. We talked a little bit in the last podcast episode about composers who were taken from us far too young, and Samuel Coleridge-Taylor was one of those. He died after only 37 years, and it pains me to think of the works we will never get to hear. I bring us now back to the clarinet quintet, which is where the playfulness comes in. Obviously, like anybody alive at that time, late 19th century, Coleridge-Taylor was incredibly impressed by the work Brahms was doing. And a lot of his earliest work showed Brahms' influence. The, the, the very steady hand of that great romantic master was apparent in the way Samuel conceived music at the time. He heard a performance of Brahms' now legendary Opus 115 clarinet quintet. This is a work that has scared essentially every composer since away from that particular instrumental combination. It's so perfect, so seminal, so complete, It doesn't need to be commented on, but the young Coleridge Taylor didn't think so. He immediately set to work on a reply. His teacher, Charles Stanford, got wind of this effort and immediately got involved. He challenged his young student to assiduously avoid any obvious Brahms influence, to truly and purely write his own work. Young Samuel was up to the challenge, gladly accepted it, and got to work and created something that pleased his teacher very much. There's a, a moment that gets talked about in all of the research where Stanford looked at the score, plucked out a few notes on the piano, and said to him, You've done it, me boy. You've done it. He was very proud of him, proud enough that several years later he took a copy of the score to Brahms's great friend, Joseph Joachim. This was in 1897. Joachim read through it privately with some of his friends in a Berlin salon, and reportedly liked it very much and put it up for publication. That didn't work right away, but eventually the piece would find its legs in the public. It is interesting to note that. Though he very, very carefully and very successfully avoided the voice of Brahms in this music, Coleridge Taylor couldn't help but invoke the sound and the influence of his true hero, the one we mentioned before, Dvorak. From grotesque circus music to the iridescence of musical light to chess theory to a good-natured bet between a teacher and a student, I hope you find something in this, as Andrew Norman called it, exploration of the physicality and joy of instrumental playing. Until next time on the Nova Podcast, I'm Jeff Counts. Enjoy the concert. Nova has received generous support from the Utah Legislature and Utah Division of Arts and Museums, the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation, Salt Lake County Zoo Arts and Parks, George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation, Isotope, Salt Lake City Arts Council, the Cultural Vision Fund, Dominion Energy, Rocky Mountain Power Foundation, the Alice M. Ditson Fund of Columbia University, and the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music. Don't forget to subscribe and share the Nova podcast with your friends. Thanks for listening.